Welcome to the Timeout Bulls podcast driven by Lexus. You can visit a Chicago area Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer today to test drive the outspoken 2017 Lexus IS. Our guest this week on Timeout Bulls is Doug Collins. Now, when I went to Doug and I said, Doug, listen, you know what? I, I'd really like to get you for our Timeout Bulls podcast. He said, Chuck, let me tell you what. You know, why don't, why don't you get someone else? I said, no, Doug, I really want you. And he goes, but I didn't win a title. I said, but Doug, you know what? You changed the culture of our ball club when you joined the Bulls. And I mean, he brought passion. And this passion didn't extend to just a couple of games a week. It was every second of every practice, every second of every game, he was into it. I mean, he got into it. And I'm saying this very affectionately, and I'm saying this professionally, he loved it. I mean, he loved being the head coach of the Chicago Bulls. And in my opinion, and this is just strictly my opinion, folks, before we hear from Doug, I think he has one of the most brilliant basketball minds I have ever seen or come around in my lifespan. And I've been around some of the greatest of greats. No one, no one is better than Doug Collins when it comes to X's and O's and about the complete knowledge and history of the game. So let's hear from Doug Collins, the former head coach of the Chicago Bulls. Our podcast this week is with Doug Collins and obviously Bulls fans and those listening on our Bulls uh, social media sites, very well aware of Doug and what he's accomplished as a head coach, not only with the Bulls, but also turned around Detroit, turned around Washington. And in my opinion, one day we'll be in the Hall of Fame in the broadcast division as an expert analyst who, great news because he's back doing games this year on ABC and ESPN. So Doug, thank you for appearing, by the way. And uh, we're gonna talk about your son, Chris. We're gonna talk about Kelly, your daughter, who is a terrific player in her own right. Uh, but I, I also want to talk about one thing, and you can be honest with me. Where is that Sports Illustrated picture <laughs> of yourself on the cover? Where, is, it in, is it in a frame somewhere in your house? Uh, I do have one uh, in my office uh, in Arizona, my home in Arizona. I do not have one in Chicago, but it's interesting, uh, Chuck, uh, so many arenas that I go in, places I go, people will have that and they'll say, will you sign this uh, for me? And it was... Uh, and how was, many years ago was that? That was 1973. It was uh, my senior year at Illinois State. And uh, it just so happened that Curry Kirkpatrick, uh, yeah. who was one of the uh, great writers for the magazine, covered uh, uh, college basketball, he came in to see me play. And on the particular night he saw me play, I had 57 points in the game. Wow. And so I ended up going on the cover. He was doing an article on the guards, college, the senior guards at that point in time. So just so happened that I had that game, and, and so my, my, my picture went on the cover. So I've been actually on two covers. I was there on that one, and then when we played Portland um, in 77, there's a picture of me on a drive uh, against Bill Walton and stuff. So I've, I've been on there twice. So here, here Doug Collins from a small town in Illinois is on the cover of Sports <laughs> Illustrated. Do you remember the shoot that they did for the cover shot? Of course, yeah, I remember it. Because you're in your letterman's coat. I was, I was I was a senior at Illinois State, as I said before. I'd just come out, back from a class and they had it all set up at Illinois State to take the pictures. And um, so I, I, I spent probably about 35 or 40 minutes with them taking pictures, and then we had to run right down to go to practice and all. So I, I sure remember the day. It was in January. It was, it was really, really cold outside as it can be in, in uh, Illinois and that, at that time of the year. Um, but uh, what an honor. You know, what, what an honor. I mean, Chuck, you said it. I grew up in Benton, Illinois, a town of about 7,000 people. 
And if you would have told me when I was 16 years old I could have had 43 minutes in the NBA, I would have taken it, and I'm starting my 44th year. How about that? So when you received the copy of the magazine, do you remember that day you got it in the mail? I do. I actually, they sent me uh, a, a copy, and uh, it was sort of interesting because it was sort of the Sports Illustrated jinx. That day I sort of hurt my thumb in practice. You know, it was the old Sports Illustrated <laughs> yes. jinx. Now, I didn't end up not missing any games, but... Uh, uh, sure, I remember getting it and uh, and just sort of looking at it and uh, just thinking, wow. I mean, never in my wildest dreams that I think something like that could ever happen. Well, and then you went to the drugstore and bought all the copies. Of <laughs> I wish I would have had some money to be able to do that. I didn't have ten dollars in my pocket well, to do that back then. But but you know what? As we're discussing this, I can vividly see that red and black Letterman's yeah. coat. And uh, here you were as you later became the number one overall draft pick in the NBA by Philadelphia. But let's get back to college for a moment, and let's talk a little about your upbringing, especially with your parents. Yeah. Give me an idea about the way they raised you. Well, Were I, they strict? Were they tough? Did they uh, kind of pull back? You know what? I'm very much an achiever. Even I've been that way as a little kid. What I mean by that is, you know, I'm, I'm a perfectionist at heart, and I've always been very hard on myself. So I didn't need any of that from my parents, you know, that kind of motivation or structure or whatever. I always... Uh, was afraid of, of letting them down, not doing the right things. Mm -hmm. um, I was very blessed to grow up in a community. My dad actually was the county sheriff. Really? And so uh, you can look it up on the internet or whatever, but uh, it's now a museum where I grew up. I lived there for four years when my dad was sheriff, but I said I was Opie. I, I was, my dad was sheriff, my uncle was a deputy, my grandmother was the cook, and the cells were downstairs and my room was upstairs. And now they've, they've turned that into a museum. Uh, John Malkovich grew up in Benton, Illinois, so they have a bunch of his stuff in there, whatever. But it's where I grew up. And, uh, you know, just, you know, my dad, when he would bring somebody in to lock them up or whatever, I was, I think I was between the ages of five and nine when I lived in the, in the jail there. But uh, he would bring me down and, and say, this is what happens when you take something that doesn't belong to you and you get locked up or this is something when you break the law or this is something when you, you know, drive and drink or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, I was always very fearful. I have an incredible respect for the law and law enforcement. Um, and so because that's how I grew up, my mother was a very hardworking lady. Um, she used to work in a lot of the department stores in, in Benton, Illinois. So two hardworking parents had an older sister, um, my sister Linda, who's uh, five years older than me. I had a younger brother, Jeff, who was four years younger than me. So, Was, you, was your dad a sports fan, or was, did he ever coach you? No, my, my, dad, uh, he, my dad loved to fish. He was a sports fan. But I think the thing I really respect about my dad, uh, you know, amongst a lot of things, Chuck, he died when he was 57 as a young man with cancer. So, I mean, I... I wish he could have seen a little bit later of my life and watched me play more Philly and watch my grandkids grow. I mean, my children grow uh -huh. and my grandkids. But uh, he was a very quiet man, and uh, he would come to the games, and he would sit there. He wouldn't say anything and uh, come home. He never really called me by my name. He always called me son, and he would just say, son, you know, I'm proud of you. That was sort of the extent of it. Uh, he loved to cook. And so I used to bring my teammates over on days of game, and he would cook us a meal for the day of the game. So he really enjoyed doing that. So uh, it was good. But like I said, you know, he got sick at, at a very young age and, and passed uh, at lung, with lung cancer at age 57. So um, he didn't get to see a lot of the things, a lot of the blessings that uh, have, have really come about in my life. Were you heavily recruited? Um, Chuck, I was six feet tall, weighed 130 pounds my junior year in high school. Wow. 
So my junior in high school, which was 1968, I did not start for my high school team. I was I was seventh man on my high school team. Um, Benton High School, uh, for a lot of people who don't know it now because the program has really deteriorated, but my high school coach, Rich Heron, was there. Uh, we were with the, the number one team in the state two years in a row when I was a freshman and sophomore. I did not play on that team, but um, being a Benton Ranger and having a jersey and being on that high school team was something that meant a lot. And so I think I figured it up. My high school coach was there at Benton for about 30 years before he went to Southern Illinois uh, and coached the Salukis where he won three Missouri Valley titles in a, in a row and stuff. It was a, just a brilliant coach so far ahead of his time and such a huge part of who I am. But um, my senior year, I, I grew to about six, two and a half. I really had an explosive uh, junior to senior summer. I really, things took off for me. Um, ended up averaging about 27 a game my senior year. Re- was recruited, probably had probably 100 scholarship offers. Wow. Um, but I ended up uh, falling in love with Illinois State. I went there from my visit and uh, the coach there at the time was Dr. James Colley, who happened to coach my high school coach at McKendree. Mm. And I went up there on the visit. There was a guy named Tom Sirks that played on the team. He had an old beat-up Volkswagen. We drove around. We played ball. We ate at McDonald's. And just I just was so comfortable. I was a really, at that point in time, I think people would see me now. I don't think that could ever be. But uh, back then, I was pretty pretty shy and you know I mean basketball was was my coming out party it gave me a lot of confidence to be able to do a lot of things and the continuity was that the same coach that you ended up playing for all four years no uh after my freshman year my freshman year uh back then you had to play freshman basketball Mm -hmm. which was great I loved that um loved my freshman year was a chance to get acclimated what we did a lot we used to play the prelim game to the varsity game sure so people would come in and watch who the team was going to who the freshman well those old ucla stories exactly lou alcinder now cream up right they would take that freshman team and beat the varsity exactly exactly so so i played freshman ball um, and, you know, it was a great way to get acclimated to school because I really took my uh, studies seriously. You know, I was, I was, I'm a, a first-team academic All-American, and I'm in the College Academic Hall of Fame that Dick Emberg has. So, I, you know, I never had any dreams about being an NBA player, so I, I felt like I wanted to be a great student, and, and uh, I wanted to be the best player I could be. Dr. Colley got multiple sclerosis after my first year there, and Milt Weisbecker, who was the athletic director there. He was from Mount Vernon, Illinois, which is about 20 miles away from Benton. And um, he he took on a huge role in my life because my, the day I got in my car uh, to go to school, my mom and dad divorced. And so I, I drove up to school and I was sort of by myself and I pulled up in front of the dorm and kids were being checked in the dorm. Their moms and dads were there. And you know I just sort of looked up and I counted up 10 floors, 10, 16 Wilkins, that's gonna be my home. and you know, had a few tears and, and said, okay, let's go. And checked myself in my room. I had a great college roommate, Craig Spires from Joliet West. He was a really good player. He played on the team and uh, just wanted to study. So he and I really were a great fit as roommates. We had we had a lot in common and, and uh, we, we really enjoyed each other's company. And I think we really helped each other out, stay really structured. You know, that freshman year sometimes you can get off track sometimes mm-hmm. being away from home. But I, I've always been so disciplined with that. So uh, Milt Weisbecker, uh, who was the athletic director, he did something, I mean, that nobody else had the courage to ever do. He hired the first black coach in Division One basketball, Will Robinson, out of Detroit. 
Detroit. And Coach Robinson had been there for 30 years, one of the all-time great coaches, high school coaches, great star players, Spencer Haywood, you know, Mel Daniels, Ralph Simpson, great, great, great athletes. He, a bunch of his players went on and played football. They played major league baseball. He was just so ahead of his time. And he came to um, Illinois State at that point in time, 1970, Central Illinois, first black coach. And uh, uh, I just fell in love with him. I, I just um, did it raise some eyebrows. Oh, of course it raised. At that point in time, you know, I mean, Chuck, I was raised in an all-white community, and you know, a lot of you know, a lot of spec. You know, well, you got a black coach. Is you know, what's Doug? You know, is he going to stick around or whatever? I met him, and, and the first day I met him, I, I fell in love with him. I looked into his eyes, and he said, champ, he called me champ all the time. He said, champ, he said, I've watched you play on tape or whatever, and he said, I think I can get you to where you want to go if you'll just trust me. Mm. And I said, I'll trust you. Wow. And I worked, man. I worked. I, You know, Chuck, the one thing I do pride myself on is I, I don't think has anybody ever worked harder at the game than I did probably to a point where I broke down later in the NBA because I never let myself rest. I was always worried about losing my job. So I just drove myself. So you played with the, an edge of insecurity or did you I just, play? well, you know, I, I, I mean, probably a little bit, you know. I, I mean, you know, growing up the way I did and I, I was just always, I always felt that I was gonna lose my job, you know, and, and so I said, I always said, nobody's taking my job. Nobody's gonna take my job. And I was a four-time All-Star and I said, nobody's taking my job. I, I just, that's the way I'm wired. You know, if I walk into a room and you and I are taking a test, you know, I'm going to look at you and I'm, I'm, you know, Chuck, I'm going to beat you on this test. You know, that's just the way I'm driven. So probably a little insecurity along the way and um, probably a little fear of failure. Sure. You know. Whatever and, drives you. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Doug, I know you've told this story a million times, but just for the sake of our podcast, the Olympic situation yeah. involving the Soviet Union and I think everything is well documented and we don't need to rehash all the things that have happened. But has that left a scar on your basketball soul? Do you think about it much or only when it's brought up or only when you're doing games, for example, when you were calling Olympic games and people, all the writers are coming up there, hey, Doug, you know, you're going to have to revisit it every four years. Yeah. It, it's raw during, during the Olympics because, you know, I, I always said the thing I missed was my teammates and I, you know, putting on our warm-ups after you win the game and getting up behind that podium and just watching the guys lock arms and stand up on that podium and watching this year Jerry Colangelo put the gold medals around their necks. And hearing the anthem. And hearing the national anthem. Yes. You know, we, we didn't get that. And, uh, and so I think we had our 40th anniversary in 2012, all, all – uh, 12 of us were still alive and we got together and man it was still raw I mean there were tears in the room and we told stories and we laughed and and uh, it was the first time we'd been in the room together since that night that it happened so uh, has it scarred me no um, but I've, I've always said you know Chuck I if I ever wrote a book which I won't but if I ever wrote a book Sam Smith would write it I've already talked to him about that but I said it would be the title would be you know always a winner but never a champion and I've been so close so many different times to being a champion and for whatever reason uh, not been able to, to see it through. I think one of the things that helps me about it in the Olympics is in 2009, uh, when I, I did go into the Basketball Hall of Fame as a broadcaster in 2009, so I am in the Kirk okay. Gowdy wing, My so I did go in in 2009. 
But after the dinner was over, Chris had been in the 2008 Olympics, um, and uh, coaches don't get gold medals. But Jerry Colangelo had all the gold medals made up for the coaches, and Chris was one of the coaches behind the scenes. He was a scout, and he was a floor coach. He and Wojo worked for Coach K, and so they, he, they did all their drills and everything. So uh, Jerry Colangelo had a gold medal made up for Chris. And uh, that night after uh, we had our function, and uh, I'd, I'd gone in, we had our dinner, we had a little family function, probably about 25 or 30 family members, close friends or whatever. And after we were done that particular night, we were all in the room together, and Chris, uh, you know, he was, he was pretty emotional. And he started crying, and he said, you know, Dad, I have something for you. And he reached in his pocket, and, and, and he walked over, and he put his gold medal around my neck, and he said, you got your gold medal now. He said, 37 years too late, but you got your gold medal. And then he got another one in 2012. So he's got one hanging in his house, and, and he gave me his, you know, as long as I'm alive, and I've got it framed in my house. And I told him I'll give it back to him once I pass away. How beautiful stuff. is but, that, uh, though? But I, a, I do have a gold medal in my home. For a son and a father. Yeah, that connection exactly. That's great. Exactly. So it's 1973. When did you sense, Doug, that there's a possibility you could be the number one overall pick in the draft? Well, you know, I knew that year um, that good things were going to happen if I could stay healthy. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you never know what was going to happen. But uh, I knew I would be in the top ten. And um, and then as time went on, um, you know, back then you didn't go to a, a city and work out and have physicals and do all that. It just wasn't that as intense. That year the draft got pushed back for a month or whatever, you know, so when they were supposed to have the draft, it got pushed back. Um, but I had, I had, a, I, I thought I could be like in the top three probably, and then uh, went to Philly. And it was the best thing really that ever happened to me, Chuck. A lot of people don't realize, but I, I was drafted by the Sixers and I was traded to the Chicago Bulls. I was actually going to be a Chicago Bull because Jerry Sloan and Norm Van Leer were getting a little older and they had worked out a deal. They had traded Bobby Weiss and Clifford Ray for me, and I was going to come and be the heir apparent to Jerry Sloan, who mm. grew up in McLeansboro, Illinois, which was 25 miles from my house. So Jerry was always my boyhood hero. I followed him at Evansville. I followed him with the Bulls. He's always been incredibly special to me. And then Clifford Ray went in, and he had had a little bit of a knee problem, and they flunked in on his physical, so the trade was rescinded, so I went back to Philly. Philly was 9-73 and 73 when they drafted me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Chuck, you sort of mentioned a while ago, I think the one thing that I'm really proud about is wherever I've gone, uh, it's never been that bright light at the moment I was there. And I guess what I mean, when I went to uh, Illinois State, they weren't a Division One team at that point in time. And my junior year, we became Division One. And then I went to Philly, they were 9-73. and 73. And four years later, we're playing in the NBA Finals. And then as a coach, when I went to Chicago, you know, they had won 30. And then three years later, we're in the Eastern Conference Finals. You go to Detroit, uh, you Detroit, win 50 games. You have an 18-game improvement right, in Washington. Right. So and then and then in Philly, a 14-game improvement. And then three minutes away from the Conference Finals. finals. So I think the thing I'm proud about, I guess maybe I, I've been destined to be one of these guys that goes in and maybe helps something turn around and then somebody else comes in and finishes the deal. I guess maybe what that's What was your some, rookie year like, though? Being uh, the my my rookie pick. year was tough. Uh, I, I went to uh, Philadelphia, um, and about four weeks before training camp started, I played in an all-star game. I, I played in the Marich Kutcher's uh, benefit game 
in uh, at Cutcher's Country Club in New York in an outdoor place where it's like where all the great players would come in. Mm-hmm. Will Chamberlain played that night, Dr. J. I mean, it was my first. I mean, I'm walking around looking at these guys for the first time. Got in a car, drove to Boston, and was playing in an, playing an all-star game there uh, and broke my foot. And so now I drove back. I didn't know it was broken. I drove back to Philly. And so I went to the doctor, found out I had broken fifth metatarsal. They put me in a cast. And I was going to be in a cast for six weeks, and then, you know, hopefully it was going to heal and I was going to be able to come out and play. Well, in that period of time, too, then I found out that, you know, I just got married uh, at the end of June. I found out in August that, that Kathy was going to be pregnant, was pregnant with Chris. So now Kathy and I moved to a new spot. We've been married. You have a broken foot. I have a broken foot. <laughs> I'm going to Philadelphia. The team is as 9 the number 72, one pick as the number draft. one pick. And, and I, and I, I remember I, I had a cast on. I came out the night before opening night, and uh, I'm still a trivia question. I think Yao Ming and I, who are the two number one draft picks to not score a point in their first game? I think Yao Ming and I were both on the on that list or whatever. But I hadn't practiced. But you know, there is no play when you read the stat. There is nothing to know like how did that happen kind of thing. But uh, I tried to play 25 games. The doctor told me your foot's still not. Bro- is your foot still broken? And, you know, the worst thing that can happen is you break it through and then we'll have to go fix it. And so I played about 25 games, just enough to know what, what it was all about, refractured it, had to have, a, had to have surgery, I went into a cast. I was in a cast for about three and a half months, came out of the cast. Chris was born about two weeks later, and then I went on a mission. And that mission was I, I'm going to show these people I can play. Like, I'm not going to be a bust. All I'm heard about is, like, I'm going to be one of these Philadelphia busts, all these guys that have come in there. And I said, just give me a chance to get healthy. And actually spent that summer back at Illinois State. And I would get up. My, my best friend, Don Frankie, was back there. We'd play racquetball two hours every morning. I would run in the afternoon. I'd play basketball at night. And I was going to be on a mission to say, just let me be healthy. And finally got healthy, and some good things happened. We'll be back to our guest in a moment. Let's take a quick break to thank our friends at Lexus and tell you about the new 2017 Lexus IS. Now, much like your favorite Bulls players, the new 2017 Lexus IS has a powerful stance, a strong profile, and an undeniable presence. Visit your Chicago area and Northwest Indiana Lexus dealer to test drive an outspoken IS today. It proves that some of the most powerful statements don't need words at all. Now, let's get back to Time Out Bulls, driven by Lexus. You mentioned the 77 finals. You had a 2-0 lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also a, a fight, altercation, mm-hmm. whatever that you want to call everything. it. It changed everything. The yeah. complexion with, what, Maurice Lucas and Daryl Dawkins? Yeah, right at the end of that game, game two. Game one was a really, really close game. I remember Daryl Dawkins made a couple free throws uh, late in the game. I stripped uh, uh, Herm Gilliam. I think it was a two-point game at the time, under a minute maybe or so. Daryl made a couple free throws. We went a very close game. There was a four-day layoff between game one, game two. Played game two with about five minutes to go. You know, we were up pretty handily. Um, and uh, there was a, a fast break, a loose ball or whatever. And Daryl, oh, it was a rebound, excuse me, it was a rebound. And Daryl and Bobby Gross get tied up. And Daryl sort of swung swung the ball away from Bobby Gross. When he did, he threw him down. 
And then uh, uh, Maurice Lucas came in and punched him in the back of the head. Now they sort of square off, and Daryl swings, and he actually hits me, and the scar underneath my eye is when Daryl cut my eye. I had like seven stitches. Uh, They separated it. Daryl got kicked out. Um, uh, Maurice Lucas got kicked out, who was sort of the, you know, Bill Walton was their best player. But uh, Lucas was sort of the soul of that team. He gave Mm -hmm. them a toughness. And uh, we ended up winning the game by 25 and then went to Portland. And um, and there were no suspensions. No suspensions. How about that? None, none. (laughs) I mean, yeah, no, no. And and a lot of people remember the video, but everything was breaking loose or whatever. And it was a picture of Julius Dr. J sitting on the floor or whatever, sort of with his hands on his knees, just sort of waiting for it to all get over with and stuff. So, (laughs) but that did turn it. Portland came together. We fragmented. That they had more of a they had more of a, a team that was collectively bound together. We fragmented. Um, they beat us three straight to go up three two, and then in game six, George McGinnis had had a terrible uh, postseason or whatever. He finally broke loose in game uh, six on the road, and uh, we were down one. I think George missed a bank shot, and they win game six by one. Otherwise, we'd had game seven back in our building. So. That was a tough flight home, Chuck. Uh, you know, for you know, from Philly, Portland to Philly, um, di- digesting you know a yeah. championship that we let get away from us. And then in 1980, um, I was playing and uh, I hurt my knee right before the playoffs started, and that's the year Magic Johnson played all five positions in and, that victory. And they but... came in. Kareem rolled his ankle in Game Five. Did not play in Game Six. Magic Johnson jumped center and was incredible that particular night. Jamal Wilkes had an amazing game, and, and they, they beat us that night, and I had a knee injury and couldn't play. So, like I said before. And when was your last year in the league? Uh, 81. 81. And, and 80, you knew it was time? Your well, body I, had just... well, I just couldn't do it anymore. I just I just couldn't play. I mean, as much as I wanted to, Chuck, I just couldn't do it. And so, I you know, I said, what am I going to do here? I did have three years guaranteed money left on my deal. Now, back in then, you're not going to, you know, retire on that. I can tell you what I was making. But I had sort of an interesting clause in my deal that uh, they could use me as a coach, general manager, or broadcaster. And so it's actually when I started broadcasting, I was a volunteer assistant coach at the University of Pennsylvania with Bob Weinhouse. I would go over and work for free over there with their players. And then I would broadcast the Sixers home radio. Hmm. And that's how I got started. And then, and then, interestingly enough, Chuck Daly left midway through the year to go to Cleveland to be the head coach. Matty Gukas was doing TV. He stepped to be the assistant coach, and they moved me to do TV. And that's how I got started in TV. Wow. Well, the first time, Doug, I remember seeing you on the bench was not at Penn. It was at Arizona State. Yes, yes. Arizona State played, played in DePaul. a tournament to Paul. I got a great at, story about that. And Byron Scott was on that Arizona yeah. State team. I got a great story about that. You know, it was one of Coach Ray's milestone wins was going to be that night. We played him at DePaul, and we, it was a tournament. We won our first game or whatever. And if Coach Ray won this, I don't know if it was his 600 victory or 700, whatever. So it was some – some and and uh, and so I was kidding the referees. They came with, b- before the game. I said, "Now I heard one of you guys played for Coach Meyer before. Like, which one of you guys played?" And they were all kidding. They said, "We all three did." And I said, "Good luck with this tonight," kind of thing. So that's and, a true story, by the way. Exactly. They ended up beating us. In, but I was kidding the referees. But I said, "Which one of you guys played for Coach?" Yeah. And they said, "We all three." We did. went to his camp in Wisconsin. <laughs> exactly. Oh, okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. 
when did the notion say, you know what, I want to try the pro game? Well, I, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Um, my second year at Arizona State, my number one recruit was Reggie Miller. Um, mm. And he was over at California Riverside High School. And I went in to see him early before his uh, senior year started. And I sat down with the family. And you know, I said, you know, really want Reggie, and I'm really going to follow him hard this year, whatever, and hope he'll come to Arizona State. Reggie really liked Byron Scott, and it's interesting. Later on, they ended up playing on the same team with each other with the Pacers, but he really liked Byron. Uh, Byron being a California kid and stuff, so uh, I, I went to most every one of Reggie's high school games, and went in to sign him after the year was over, and uh, walked in with his jersey. You know, walked in. Back then, you walked in the papers. They signed the papers right. that night or whatever. And um, UCLA, UCLA had lost all their top recruits. And um, they offered Reggie late. They hadn't even offered him. And Reggie ended up going to UCLA. And his sister was at USC. And I went back to Arizona State. And I walked into Bob Weiner. And I turned in my keys. I said, I can't do this anymore. Really? I said, I can't do that. So I always killed Reggie that Reggie drove me out of the college game. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, I just didn't I, the recruiting. I just didn't. Unless Sam Gilbert, you know, yeah, I, I just I just didn't. I didn't like to recruit. And yeah. I, I loved, you know, talking to the young guys or whatever. But just all the stuff that went with it, Chuck. I yeah. just I just didn't. I just didn't like it. So the pro game. Yeah. Had that evolved? Well, it was. I was doing TV. I was doing CBS. I was doing both college and NBA. And Gary Bender was my partner. And you talk about being blessed. A good man. But a lot of man. people who don't know Gary Bender, yep. when, when he was back in the early, he was one, one of the gold standards of oh, broadcasting. Yeah. He was the guy in CBS. He was fantastic. And so Gary and I did the second team broadcast. Brent Musburger was their number one guy. And so I was doing both college and NBA. And I guess Jerry Krause heard me on the telecast. And he liked my mind. He liked my basketball mind. And so they called me up and they said, we would like for you to write a scouting report up on our team, if you would mind the Bulls. Like, just would you watch us and would you write a scouting report on all of our players, what you think about all of our players or whatever. And I said, I, I will do that. I said, but I won't critique your coach. Stan Albeck was the coach at the time. And mm -hmm. Stan was a small town guy from Central Illinois. I think Chenault, Illinois, right, which was, and I had a lot of respect for I said, I won't critique your coach. But I will tell you what I feel about your players. And I wrote uh, handwritten back then, hand wrote a bunch of stuff, sent it to them. And that was the year that Michael ended up scoring 69 or whatever against Boston. 63. 63 or he whatever. He played 18 games that year. Yeah, he had the stress fracture yes, he in did. his foot. And, and they and, had a time limitation. Exactly. And, the whole bit. and so. Um, they let Stan go after that, and they called me up and said, we'd like to interview, we'd like for you to interview the head coach of the Bulls. And I'm going like, oh, my gosh, I'm 35, 36 years old and never been a head coach or whatever. But, you know, I I could do that. I mean, I, I, I trust myself or whatever. So I went in and met with Jerry. And Tex Winter flew out to my house in Arizona, met with me for one day. We spent a day together. Jerry Reinsdorf flew in. He was over in Tucson a lot at the time because I think he and his wife had a home in Tucson at the time. And... They offered me the job, and I accepted it, and uh, that's how I got involved in NBA coaching. What was your first training camp like? Uh, I mean, were you tested right away? or Because you were an NBA player, you kind of got the feel uh, of that. You know what? I, I, I think they felt from moment one that I was secure in what I was doing. Um, the, the, Chuck Daly used to have a great line. He used to say, there's thing, three things you can't fool. You can't fool kids, dogs, or NBA players. <laughs> 
and okay. Chuck, Chuck was my assistant in Philly. He was like a really okay. a father figure to me. And I remember I remember that in the back of my mind. So you're not going to fool these guys. So you better be real, and you better come every day and know what you're doing. They don't care that you played. Are you going to make them better? And so they can make more money, and so the team can win. So I always understood that from day one. And uh, I have to tell you, anybody would tell you that they knew who Michael Jordan was going to eventually become is wrong. I mean, because, I mean, I saw him for the first time playing, and I was just, I mean, I was like just amazed, like, oh, my goodness. But, I mean, little did I know that he was going to be the, the greatest player ever. And, and I just, uh, I think the one thing that Michael really appreciated with me was my competitiveness and my mind. Because and, you challenged him. He told me, I mean, he went through Kevin Lockery and Stan Albeck, which was great. But I think you you hit a chord with him in a positive way where you challenged him. Yeah. And when you're a superstar, usually the coach backs off. But you, you kind of challenged him, did well, you Well, you know what? I, I think there's this misconception, uh, Chuck, and I've said this on many telecasts, I've said it when I worked in the studio, great players want to be coached. They want to be coached hard, and they, be, they want to be coached well. And, and I always- well, What does that mean? Well, that means that every single day they want you to hold them accountable. But see, a guy like Michael Jordan, he won everything. He won every drill. I mean, if you ran a line drill, he won that. If you ran a shooting drill, he won that. If you played three on three, he won that. So that was there. But but I think the one thing about it is it's it's you've got to you've got to trust enough that you can correct them in practice or in a film session because every player the first thing they're going to do is they're going to look at how you're coaching the best player. And I remember Charles Oakley was on the team, and Oakley taught me a great lesson one of the first film sessions. We were in watching tape or whatever, and I said, guys, we we got to do a better job of this. Or, guys, you know, look at our block out. We're not blocking out. And, and Oak, as only Oak could be, he said, Coach, can I say something? I said, sure. What do you got, Charles? He said, would you tell us who you're talking about and stop speaking in, 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 in generalities? Wow. And I said, I can do that. I said, but... Can we accept that? Are we are we willing to come in this in this film, and can we take being coach? And 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 nobody's going to beat up on anybody, but that it's not going to be personal. That we're going to be better by watching this tape, how we talk and how we come out. And and Oak was one of the first guys who taught me that. Like, tell us who you're talking about. And anytime I sp- talk about coaching, or I talk about business, or I talk about leadership. Or I talk about anything, Chuck. There's two words I always use. I said, if you're going to be successful, you better develop a level of trust so you can speak the truth. Truth cannot come before trust. Because if you speak the truth to somebody who doesn't trust you, it's personal. But Chuck, if you and I trust each other, and then we get in a room, and let's say we're broadcast partners. I might look at you and say, I said, Chuck, you know, you made... You know, four mistakes, and I, you missed call the wrong guy because you tried to go too fast. Just take your time on the call. Well, I mean, if, if we don't have any relationship, that comes across as me like that's a personal thing. But if we're locked together, it, you, you, I'd give you the same thing. Hey, Doug, you know, on that replay or whatever, let the people. So now we're a team. Now we can speak the truth to each other. And that's the best teams. There's trust which creates truth. And that's what I speak about. And if you don't have that, you'll have chaos. 
If you don't have that, you'll have chaos because crisis will fragment you. If you can't speak the truth to your team, crisis will fragment you. That's where everybody pulls apart. There are images in my mind as you're talking, Doug, and we just have a few minutes to go, but we could go on forever. But there are images of you coaching the Bulls. Of course, the game where Michael hits the shot on Elo, and you are so excited. You're running on the floor, and I think the whole city of Chicago was on your back. And I mean that in a very loving manner because that that was an emotional, emotional game. And that shot and everyone felt they were Doug Collins racing on the floor. Can you are you Well, I, I you know, it was it was just to sort of set it up, you know, it was a great game. You know, a lot of people don't realize we played Cleveland six times that year. We were 0-6 against them yeah. in a regular season. We played them the last game at, at Chicago Stadium that year of the regular season, and they set out three of their best players and still beat us. And now five days later, we got to start a playoff series against them. Well, I'll tell you what I did. I, I had uh, that game, and I had a – I put a camera on Lenny Wilkins the entire game, that game, and I actually put a microphone underneath his – did you really? I did, which is you're not supposed to do. <laughs> and why'd you do that? Because what I did was I Johnny Bach and I got to the uh, arena. Then I got to the practice facility. We were at the Berto, or not? We were at the Multiplex at that time, and um, I put the film on and I synced up every one of his calls with the film. Uh-huh. And so we we knew them inside and out getting ready to go into that series. So we win game one. Mark Price didn't play. He had a groin injury. They win game two. We win game three. Game four, Michael misses two free throws Mm -hmm. that would have won it for us. Now we got to go to game five to Cleveland. And it's Sunday. On that Saturday, the Kentucky Derby was being run. And it's a true story. You can look it up. And we landed in Cleveland. The game was going to be on Sunday. Richfield, Ohio, and I found out that Sunday Silence won the Kentucky Derby. And so I walked into the hotel and I said, guys, I just want one minute with you. And so we walked over, I said, Sunday Silence just won the Kentucky Derby. That's what it's gonna be in Richfield, Ohio tomorrow when we beat them, Silent Sunday. Wow. And when Michael hit the shot, silence silence and that meant a lot because uh we then went right to new york won game one in overtime won that series in six went right to detroit won game one in that series lost home in game six that year scotty had been hitting with an elbow in game five did not play in game six he had concussion and stuff so he couldn't play which would end up being my last game for the bulls but i always felt that that moment for the Chicago Bulls when Michael hit the shot is is the moment when the the championships were, were starting to come. I would agree with you. That, I, that, I, it, I totally there's, agree. There's, there's always like an epiphany. Something happens within a franchise. Right. And there is a certain moment or a yeah. period of time. Yeah. And I just felt like when Michael hit that shot that, that eventually – there was going to be a championship. I don't know if it's going to be six or how many, but but I knew I, I felt there'd be a champion. Doug, the 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 other image uh, is the, at Chicago Stadium when the Pistons and Bulls got into it, and you were right in the <laughs> mix of it. And if you could describe to our listeners what it was like 
Bulls Pistons in that era. Yeah. Because, um, in fact, I just had this conversation with um, with Scoop Jackson of ESPN.com because I, I, I despise the word hatred because hatred has many dark yeah. thoughts and layers to it. But in a basketball vernacular, yeah. there was hatred. It wasn't yeah. just we're competing against. I mean, as a coach, give me an idea what it was like coaching against Detroit and the bad boys. Well, you have to all the you know all the little subplots or whatever. I told you, remember Chuck Daly, who was their coach, was like yes. my mentor in yep. Philly. You know, so there was a great feeling with him. It was contentious. They 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 aggravated you. They hit you. After the whistle, they bang you. Uh, you know, it was it was just one step all the time, getting as close as they could get. They were trying to get in your minds psychologically, physically. They were trying to knock you around emotionally. They tried to get you disjointed. So you really had to stay focused when you played them. Plus, you you know throw in you know Isaiah Thomas is from Chicago, Michael mm-hmm. Jordan. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that that, sure. went, that went with that or whatever. So that that particular game, I'll never forget it because it it was it was an ugly game. I mean, and it was real testy. You could just feel it. And um, a play happened right down by our bench there at Chicago Stadium, underneath the basket, and there was a little bit of a skirmish. And somebody grabbed Oak from behind. I think it might have been Isaiah, and had his arms sort of pinned behind him. And I thought one, I thought Mahorn was going to hit him. And and so my my reaction was I, I tried to wrap myself around Mahorn so he couldn't throw a punch because Oak Oak was he was being held. And so it was my instinct that you know I can't let Oak. And I and what happened was he was so big and so sweaty. That my hands went up and it was like it was like I was choking him, you know. So now I'm just holding on for dear life because I mean he would he would smash me. So he he threw me over the scores table. I jumped up. I went back and grabbed him again, <laughs> and it was just you know all. Did you that, know at the time what you were doing? No, or was this just no, like, just you know I think it was that sort of like your parent, and you know one of your kids is in trouble or whatever and, and it's it like your protective... it's that old fight or flight mechanism yes. am i going to do one thing i'm going to run as fast as i can or i'm going to get in a fight i might yeah. get my butt beat but i'm going to get in it yeah. and and it was you know they separated it uh oak got kicked out uh i remember coming over my shirt tail was out of my pocket i, I remember and i looked at the guys and we're not going to lose this game we are not going to lose this game we're going to stand up to these guys we're not going to lose this game and I guess that's that part of me that I tried to hopefully instill in that team. You know, I, I wasn't around to coach them as a championship team, but just that feeling like, man, this is ours and nobody's going to take it. We won, a, we won a really, really great game. It was a tough, tough game. I remember going in the locker room afterwards, and Oak was sitting in his locker, and, and Oak was – he was so pure. There was not a – there was – when Oak said something, I listened to it because – it was coming from his heart, and he had no agenda. He right. was pure. You had him in yeah, you, you in were in Toronto. Toronto. Yeah, I, I know Oak. But... He's pure. Yeah, and he wanted to win. He's tough, and and we were all sitting around. A great win, guys, or whatever. And he looked up at me, and he just in his own sort of way says, "Coach," he said, "You know, a lot of coaches said they'll fight for the guys or whatever." He said, "You fought for me tonight, and I'll I'll always appreciate yes. that for you." And, and I'll tell you what I remember in the locker room. The players had your back, yeah, and they loved you yeah. for that. That was another. So, when but the those bull- are moments along the absolutely. line, Chuck, that you have when you're trying to get to where you want to go. There's so many ups and downs and highs and lows or whatever. But I guess the the thing I, I 
you know, it's, it's passion. You know, it, it's passion. It's love. It's joy. That's what the game brings out in you. And I said, you know, the interesting thing about broadcasting is, you know, it's a great life. Great life. But there is no final score. Like when you're coaching but or when do, you're playing. So, Doug, do you miss it? I miss teaching. I miss teaching the game. I don't miss all the stuff that goes with it. I see all the stuff that goes So you with don't it. want to be a head coach again? No, 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 no. When I left Philly, that was. That was it. Yeah, yeah. But, no, could, no. but could you accept a role as a teacher yeah, yeah. on I mean, a bench at an yeah, NBA? I, I've always said um, I would, if there was a young coach who wanted like me to be like their Johnny Bach or Phil's Tex winner or Larry Bird's Dick Harder or, you know, Steve Kerr's. Uh, Coach Adam, sure. Ron Adams, yeah. or whatever. I've, you look at a lot of those coaches that are growing up, but it, it had to be somebody who just knew that man. All you wanted to do was help them, like, and who's secure with and themselves. secure, and not wondering what was going on. Or, right in this business, man, you can't worry about who's getting the credit. You just got to win, man. You win, and and it's it's hard. But but would I do that? Of course, I would do that. You know, I, I've you know I've I've talked to a couple coaches before to do that. Um, it just hasn't worked out. I have no desire to be a head coach. It's you know I'm 65 years old. I'm I'm, energ I'm energized. I mean I'm I'm in great health. I mean it's not like I couldn't put up with it, or or have the the the, the energy or wherewithal to do it. It's, I'm in a different place in my life. I've got Chris here at Northwestern. I got my daughter Kelly out in Philly. I got five grandchildren, and I don't I don't want to miss. I don't want to miss out on their lives. I, I really I don't. I there's no win right now worth ever missing out on, on loving my five grandkids. And and I will tell you, you know, I Chuck, there's nothing like it when Chris Collins wins a game. I'm sitting there, man, it's like the pride and the joy and stuff you have because, you know, Chris has done a little bit like what I did. He he walked into a place that's never had success at the yeah. way that you'd like to see it. Never and been to an this, never, this school yeah, has never and, been to an NCAA tournament. And I see tournament. what he's doing and and you know sometimes what happens And happen they're going to get there. Of course and, and but see Chuck sometimes what ends up you don't see is all the layers that are laid down before you can have those moments of winning. Winning comes last. That's the last part to do is when you got to get that pyramid I thought you got to get the trust, you got to speak the truth, you got to get accountability. You got to get you know people all buying in for the same thing, and now what's going to be exciting around here in Northwestern is I mean at the end of this year they're going to blow this up and they're going to build a brand new arena here and chances are they're talking about maybe even a practice facility. All of a sudden now Chris can walk kids into yeah, look at the facilities, look where we're going to play, you know, and and he's got. Uh, a, a present here, Dr. Shapiro, his athletic director, Dr. Phillips, not only is the best AD, but one of the finest men I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And I know what they want for Chris and Fitz and these coaches here. And and it's exciting. It's exciting for me to be a part of. Yeah. Doug, this has been great. We appreciate your time. I know I can speak for a lot of Bulls fans who know in their hearts, and I'm speaking very transparently, they know that the culture of this ball club, without Doug Collins, they don't win six championships. And I'm not saying anything disrespectful to Phil because Phil's record speaks for itself. I get that. But had you not laid this groundwork for the Bulls franchise, they are not mentally, okay, mentally, because they had all the tools physically and whatnot, they don't have the mental sharpness to get over the top. They don't have the ability in that game at the Forum in L.A. 
when Phil says, hey, you got to pass the ball to Pax, and Pax is ready to take that fourth right. quarter. They don't have that. Yeah. All I'm saying, yeah. without Doug Collins, they don't win those titles. Well, I have to tell you, Chuck, I, I've been very blessed to live in a lot of different places in my life. Chicago is so special to me. I only coached here three years and took my but last year. But it seems longer, My last it? year was 1989. Okay, 1989, think about what is that, 11, 27 years ago. And I walk into Starbucks every day or I wherever in the city, hey, coach, hey, coach, man, we appreciate what you did here. That means the world to me. You, you know, I don't have any rings. Jerry Reinsdorf gave me six championship watches. He did say as long as, as, long as this team wins championships and as long as Scotty and Michael are here, and he gave me six watches with six beautiful handwritten notes yeah. and then asked me to be at his induction the other day. I, I don't need a ring, but but you know what? We all, I think we all live to work hard enough to say, you know what? We appreciate what you did. And believe me, I, I love these people here in Chicago. They've been so good to me. All right. That's been Doug Collins. Lexus, a proud partner of the Bulls. You can visit your Chicago area, Northwest Indiana, Lexus dealer, see how Sophistication can be daring in the redesign Lexus RX. Subscribe to Timeout Bulls on iTunes and Google Play. And if you'd like what you heard, leave us a review. We'll be back next week with another great guest. Until next time, this is Chuck Swirsky. Thanks for listening to Timeout Bulls.